Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone. I hope that you're all doing well. What better way to start the new year off with a bang than some great scary stories? So without further ado, let's not waste any time and drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I'm an oil rig worker in the Persian Gulf. There is evil in the pipes. Written by Darkly Gathers. If you're hearing this, then it means that I escaped. My story is a brutal one and I'll share it in the style that it was intended to be read so that you might understand, so that you might see it through the eyes of one who suffered. Please consider this a cautionary tale. It is, I admit, unlikely that you will find yourself in such a situation. But hey, you never know, right? My name is Cater and I take pride in my work and I work on the pipes. My current job revolves around an oil pipeline in the Persian Gulf. It's at the very bottom of the sea between Saudi Arabia and Iran. It's just gone midday, but unfortunately, we are too far down for the light at the surface to reach us. So my current surroundings are illuminated by nothing more than the yellowish beam of my flashlight. A small collection of bubbles escape from my diving mask. They ripple up and out of sight as I gently kick my flippers, slowly propelling myself through the gloom. As a worker down here, I am one of three, but the others are not currently visible to me. My beam lands on the great metal pipe, the one that extends up and into the habitat, a cage-like artificial pocket of air, and down, down into the depths below. I look down and cast my beam over the pipe's body. The light catches on nothing but the rusted metal. A lone, cylindrical obelisk in the watery world around me. I lower the beam and I cast it as far down as it'll go, but all I see are my flippers beneath me, gently kicking, and the grey pipe vanishing into the blue-black darkness beneath my feet. A chill passes through my body. I hear the sound of my heartbeat in my ears. Where this vertical pipe connects to its horizontal brother on the ocean floor, there is an enormous metal structure of sorts, one with the purpose of keeping a series of temporary installments attached to the pipe in place. I cannot see this monstrosity at present, but the simple act of knowing, knowing that far below lurks a monstrous metal skeleton, waiting patiently beneath my feet. My shiver. They tell tales about this place you know, about the sea. Tales of malevolent spirits that play tricks on divers. Water jinn, they're called. These spirits show the divers illusions and distortions to confuse them. They get them deliberately lost as a form of amusement, the tales say. And then depending on the spirits' moods, they either get bored and let them go. Or they devour them. 
Something glitters in the gloom in the corner of my eye, and I wheel around in the water raising the beam of a flashlight, a gasp escaping into my mask. But the beam lands on nothing more than a school of tiny silver fish. They flutter by and pay me no mind, and I catch my breath. Idiot cater, I murmur to myself, my voice obscured by the mask. And I kick my way up through the water, following the pipe towards the habitat's air pocket. I see the waterline rippling above me, it draws closer and closer, and I catch sight of flashes of color beyond my comrades. Eventually, I break through the surface, popping off my mouthpiece and raising my mask, shaking my hair as I clamber up onto the little platform that surrounds us. A bench light apparatus that goes all the way around the inside rim of the habitat. As I said before, I am one of three. My colleagues are called Amir and Ahmad, and they sit waiting for me, their legs dangling over the side, their flippers dipped in the water beneath. I let out a grunt and a sigh as I take a seat beside them, my own flippers half submerged in the water beneath. It seems almost paradoxical, this little space, a marvel of physics. We sit far below the surface of the sea in the small confines that the habitat provides, and yet we have air to breathe. The habitat is a metal box about four meters in width and three in height. The air in here is dank and stale, but it is at the least quite breathable. From the center of the water between us, the pipe extends up and into the stagnant air. The pipe is currently corked by an enormous rubber plug, one that we will need to deflate before our shift is over. Its purpose is to prevent the oil inside the pipe from leaking out into the sea. Thanks to the habitat, we can safely remove it now without risk of environmental damage. The pipe in question goes all the way down to the bottom of the sea in a straight line, and there it splits in two and travels horizontally across the sea floor. One end travels north a few miles out from the Saudi Arabian coast, and the other travels south. It's just about wide enough for a man to squeeze down, should an emergency repair need taking place from the inside but the diameter is not large. I wipe some of the salt water from my face as Amir connects a long black cable to the depressurizer. The end of the cable leads down into the pipe and is connected to the rubber plug. You see any spirits down there today, Kadar? Amir asks me as he fastens the seal on the cable. The Jean of Bahar, Ahmad chuckles, scratching his beard. His voice, as does Amir's, echoes around the somewhat claustrophobic confines of the habitat. I smile dryly. And no spirits, Amir, just... I think about the pipe, disappearing down into the darkness far below. I can't quite explain why it gives me the creeps, it just does. Just what? Amir asked me. Um, nothing, I finish. What about you guys, any spirits? I turn to Ahmad. Have you finally caught sight of the Jean al-Bahar? I wave my hands and fingers, mysteriously teasing him, but Ahmad is undaunted. You mock, Kadar, but this sea, this ancient sea, if we're going to see one, then it'll be here. He claps his hands together and a small shower of water droplets splash down into the water by her feet. The shimmering blue gateway to the sea below, the sea above, and the ocean all around. 
And I tell you what else, he continues, raising a finger. I did see something. Oh, here we go. Amir mutters, rolling his eyes. No, no listen, Ahmad says hurriedly. I just listened to this. So there I was right about an hour ago, swimming around near the pipe when I may have gotten a little distracted by a fish. Amir shakes his head and we exchange a glance. You should have seen it, Amir. A great, a golden thing. I wanted a better look so I left the pipe and followed it. Just for a short while and eventually, it got spooked and vanished into the blue. Ahmad falters and he rubs his chin. It was actually quite an alarming experience. I turned back to the pipe and of course I saw nothing but the endless void of the ocean. I tried to retrace my steps but again there were no steps. I was alone and it was frightening. Amir and myself remained silent. But then that's when I saw it. I saw them. Ahmad continues practically jumping on the metal ledge that we're all perched on. Hey, easy, I say, as I feel myself rattle in time to his jumps. Amir flicks a switch on the depressurization machine. It starts to rumble. Ahmad leans forward, looking between us. Out there in the far distance, I see a trio of shapes. Three figures like shadows in the deep in the gloom. Oh, you should take up poetry. Amir mutters and he flicks another switch. Against my sense of better judgment, I am too engrossed in Ahmad's story to pay attention to exactly what it is that he's doing. What kind of shapes? I ask. What kind of figures? They were like smoke, except no, more like mist maybe. Thick, dense mist, with eyes that flickered pale like refracted sunlight. He had to look a certain way to see them. Ahmad's voice drops low and becomes wistful. I saw them only for a second or two and then they were gone. Vanished. How'd you get back to the pipe? I ask. Did the spirits show you the way? Amir chuckles. Oh, well, no, I just used the compass, Ahmad says. But that's beside the point. I saw something I know that I did. I thought the spirits were supposed to be dangerous, Amir says. The stories always tell of how cruel they are. They play pranks on divers like us, you know. They bang on the pipes. They groan and moan from the inside. Makes you think that there are monsters inside, waiting to burst right out and get you. Well, maybe that's why they appeared to me, Ahmad says thoughtfully, and then gestures to the pipe between us. Maybe they were trying to warn us. Perhaps there's a monster in the pipe. Amir snorts. Don't be ridiculous. Maybe once the plug is deflated, Ahmad says softly, maybe the beast will spring right out. And where would we go? We are effectively trapped down here when you really think about it. There is a moment of uncomfortable silence broken only by a slow hissing produced by the depressurization machine as it begins its work deflating the plug in the pipe. Amir says after a beat, shaking his head. Don't say such stupid stuff. What nonsense. All I'm saying, Ahmad finishes shrugging, is that the spirits are necessarily something to be feared. I know you guys don't really believe, but they can be helpful too. They don't devour people. The Jean al-Bahar, 
Mischievous, maybe, but not unkind in their own way. Amir grunts and waves his hand dismissively. Ahmad looks at me for support and I just laugh. Come on, I say. Enough is enough, I think. We have work to do. Wouldn't want Zahir to snitch on us again. The conversation shifts and a collective groan echoes around the habitat. I can't stand that guy, Amir says dramatically and we all laugh. Our collective dislike of the man has become a running joke between us. Zahir is technically a colleague of ours and although we rarely work in close capacity, his projects always seem to be in tandem to our own, so we're never quite rid of him. He has thick red hair and a ridiculous scraggly beard, and all in all he makes himself an easy target. A busybody and a teacher's pet you see, he clocks in more hours than he has to, unpaid I might add, yet despite his enduring and tragic efforts, he always gets passed up for promotion because he has a vacuum for a personality. Zaheer is entirely devoid of charisma. Maybe we should play a prank on him before we go up, Amir suggests, as the machine deflating the plug kicks up a gear. The hissing grows louder. What kind of prank? Ahmad asks. I don't know. We could head over to his side at Azrak 1. Bang some pipes and make some noise. Give him a little spook before his shift is over. It could be fun. Nah, it wouldn't be worth it, I reply. As much fun as that sounds, Azrak 1 is a kilometer and a half away. Do you really want to swim all that way for some childish prank? And besides, we would never fool Zaheer with a spirit BS. The man doesn't believe in anything. He has no imagination. Ah, true. Amir nods regretfully. He fiddles with the machine beside him and he gives it a light slap. And it does its job. And finishes deflating the plug to a sufficient degree, freeing up a space around it and opening a way down into the pipe. What this was supposed to do was to allow us to reach in, haul the deflated plug out and check for leaks, damage, and whether the plug needs a potential replacement. Oh, we should have been able to do this easily and safely, as the pipe at this time and on this day is supposed to be filled with oil. But for whatever reason, the pipe is not. There is, as it turns out, significantly less oil inside than we were told, and was believed. And so what happens instead takes place over the course of a few terrible seconds. A true nightmare that I would never ever be able to forget. The positive pressure inside the habitat, the little atmosphere keeping us alive, rushes instantaneously into the pipe and forces down the small amount of oil at a monstrous and inhuman speed. This motion creates what I can only describe as a blinding vortex. The air in the ocean are hauled up and around like a sudden whirlwind of chaos and terror in the blink of an eye. My vision is lost to a brutal and immediate rush of darkness as my body is slammed into the habitat wall. I scream but all that I produce is froth and bubbles as my shoulder cracks on the edge of something metal. I don't know which way is up or down. The safety in the sanctuary of the habitat is shattered. I can see nothing but shadow as water blasts into my nose and my mouth and eyes, and I'm sucked instantly and brutally down into the pipe, 
I can feel its walls pressing against me on all sides, and I'm dragged cataclysmically between them. I am forced through the water in the oil headfirst at near breakneck speed. Blood rushes to my head as my arms and legs are smashed and battered against the metal. There is only terror, terror, and darkness. My head strikes against the metal as the pipe levels out, and the world behind my screwed shut eyelids flashes red and then white. A ringing echoes in my ears and competes with the thunderous rush of the water as I release an involuntary bellow of pain. Oil and seawater pour into my mouth, my lungs, and I swallow some and breathe in the rest, choking and drowning as I'm dragged through the pipe along the seafloor. I'm going to die. This one singular thought plays over and over in my head. I'm going to die and this is the end. The terror of my situation for a quick fleeting moment is replaced by an eerie calm. The sounds of the rushing hammer and water do not lessen, but I find my attitude changed. It soothes me and I think about a beach that I visited as a young child with my family as I prepare to take my final breath. Except, instead of producing bubbles as I do so, I instead begin to choke and to splutter. I start to cough spluttering, coughing, and I realize at once that this can only mean one thing. I have found air. I gasp and retch. I try to bring my hands up to my mouth but they bang painfully against the inner wall of the pipe. My right wrist throbs angrily, sending shards of pain shooting up my arm. I think the entire hand may be broken. Air. I think to myself and the vision of the beach is lost. The terror floods immediately back into my mind in the same manner as the water was hauled into the pipe. Most of my head is submerged in the water, though my eyes and nose and mouth are free. If I lift my head then my ears are raised above the waterline and I'm able to hear, but the action presses my forehead against the cold metal above me. I've stopped moving, and the reality of my situation suddenly sets in. I'm in the pipe. Oh no, I murmur aloud, retching as I cough up water and oil. Oh no, 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 I scream. I slam my good fist against the metal, shouting for help. Please, I scream into the pitch black darkness. Please, someone, Amir, Ahmad. Panic strikes. There's nowhere to go, nowhere to turn, and no one to hear me. I can barely move. The water ebbs and sloshes around my face and I gasp. My breathing becomes shallow and dangerous. You're not drowning. I have to keep telling myself. You're not drowning. You have some air. You can breathe. You can breathe. Calm yourself. Calm yourself, Kadar. I try to raise my legs and one of my flippers kicks against the roof of the pipe. I try to turn a little to my side and realize that to do so requires significant effort and a reasonable degree of pain. I have done some serious damage to my shoulder and my neck too perhaps. The simple act of raising my head causes immense pain to shoot down my spine, but to allow my head to lower completely would mean the majority of my face is submerged. I force myself to slow my breathing, that's the priority, nice steady breathing. In and out, slow, deep breaths. With grunts of pain and a hammering heart, I shuffle and twist as best I can, searching my person for my scuba equipment. 
I believe that I'm only wearing a single flipper now. The other must have been torn off as I was sucked into the pipe. No other equipment can be found. My breathing mask in the air tank, it's all gone. It's gone. Oh God, I whisper and despite my sense of logic, I bang against the pipe. Hello, I shout into the inky darkness. Hello, is anyone there? Kadar? Comes a voice from a little ways back along the pipe. It echoes from the darkness beyond my feet. I try to raise my face a little higher to look down into the void, but it's futile. I can see nothing. Hello? I shout back. Who is it? Ahmad, are you alright? Kadar! He shouts. A relief, tempered with terror. You're alive. I can breathe. Are you okay? Another voice echoes from beyond, even Ahmad. It is fainter, but I can still hear. Guys! Comes the voice of Amir. Guys, are you both alright? Oh, thank the lord, I mutter, holding back a sob of relief. Amir, Ahmad, it's Kadar. Are you hurt? Yes, Amir calls after me. I believe one of my arms is broken. Likewise, Amir shouts, and then a little quieter. I think my legs are too. Oh, God. He releases what sounds like a cry of pain and then swears. What do we do? Ahmad calls into the pipe. What do we do? He kicks against the pipe, and the sound reverberates down and over my head. Okay, hold on, just hold on. I shout, clenching my hands into fists, thinking, using my overheating brain as best as I can. The three of us are all alive. We're trapped in the pipe at the bottom of the sea. No one knows that we're down here, and once they find the wreckage of the habitat, they'll probably assume that we were killed instantly, cast out into the sea perhaps. I feel the panic returning. I try to stretch out my limbs, but I'm unable. I kick the pipe in frustration and let out a shout of rage. Kadar, calm down, calls Ahmad. It's alright, we'll be alright. Yeah, yeah, I need to calm down. First things first. The pipe, when it reaches the sea floor, it splits into two. I don't know if we've been pulled north towards the site of Azrak 1 or south towards the site of Azrak 2. How far away are they? I try to think. Azrak 1 is situated around 1.5 kilometers north of our former location at the habitat. Azrak 2 is over twice that distance south. I have no idea how far along we were pulled down the pipe. It all happened so fast. We could be hundreds of meters in either direction by now. All I know is that the air we're breathing and the pocket created is likely due to the undulations in the pipe. Small bumps and raises over support beams. It's entirely possible that there are more of these further down the tunnel. But how large is each air pocket? And at what point do they run out? Okay, I shout down. Friends, I have an idea and we don't have time to waste. All ears, brother, Ahmad calls up. There's a moment of silence. Amir, Ahmad calls down. Yes, he replies weakly. I'm here, but I'm not in good shape. I'm going to be honest. Hey, it's okay, I shout, forcing my own confidence to grow, believing in hope for us, for the sake of my friends, if not for myself. We're going to be all right. Just listen. 
I clear my throat and the sound bounces off the pipe above me and back into my face. I raise my head to clear my ears from the water and I wince from the pain. We need to move, I shout simply. We cannot stay here or we'll die. Any further pressure changes and the pipe could fill with water to the brim. And regardless, sooner or later we'll use up all the oxygen and we will suffocate. So I propose this. We do our best to move. We shuffle our way along the pipe as far as we can. If we're in luck, we've been pulled north and we don't know how much distance we've already covered. Azrak 1 is one and a half kilometers away at the max. That's a distance that we can make, I'm sure of it. And if we've been pulled south, Amir calls. To this, I remain silent. The sound of something low and deep reverberates along the pipe. Then shakily, Ahmad replies. Alright Kadar, I'm with you. We do this. We crawl our way along the pipe and we pray. Amir, I call down. What do you think? He coughs and groans. Kadar, he says. Look, I can barely move. I can't do this. You can, Ahmad shouts out. You can. No, Ahmad. Amir groans again. My injuries are bad. I can't move more than an inch. I'm, I'm going to have to wait behind. We can't leave you behind. Ahmad splutters, but Amir interrupts. Go, he says. And once you've escaped, you'll know where to find me. Just go, all right. You said yourselves the clock's ticking. So go. I hesitate and then release a long and shuddering sigh. God save you, brother, I call down. We'll be back, I promise. We won't leave you. I know, he says, his voice distant and quiet. God, I mutter angrily, slamming my fist against the pipe. Ahmad, are you ready? There's a pause. Yes, he says. I'm right behind you, Kadar. Let's do this. And so we begin our venture. Excruciatingly claustrophobic does not even begin to cover it. The knowledge that beyond these narrow confines is nothing more than the great weight of the ocean does not fill me with bravery. Every inch that we travel requires an exertion. I find little to no leverage on the wet, slippery, and oil-soaked base of the pipe, so I have to find the slightest and narrowest of grooves, mostly around the upper half, and press my toes or heels into them, using my one good hand and my one broken hand to help force myself along through the sloshing, sinister waters. I can see nothing. There is no level of light at all for my eyes to adjust to, so in pitch darkness we remain. As we move, I try my best to keep track of the distance traveled. My estimate, I think, is reasonable after two or three meters. After ten, my grasp is feeble, and beyond that I simply lose track. It's impossible to tell. We just keep shuffling our way down the pipe, listening to the sounds of our breathing, occasionally calling down to each for reassurance, Ahmad and I. Slowly and steadily through this underwater pipe, inch by agonizing inch. It's tough to tell how much time passes, but after around 20 minutes, I make a disturbing discovery. It was gradual at first, so gradual that I did not notice, but there is now a significant stress placed on the back of my neck. I'm having to hold my face as high as I can, and my forehead has been pressed against the metal for a while now. 
It is only when I have to alter the shape of my lips to inhale the air that I realize we're running out. I suppress a wave of panic and I stop moving at once, shuffling back the way that I came to give myself a little more airspace to work with. Water sloshes in my ears and obscures my hearing, but I call down to Ahmad. Ahmad, I call. Can you hear me? Yes, he shouts back, coughing. Everything all right? Ahmad, I falter. Ahmad, we're about to run out of air. There's a pause. What do you mean? He asks, his voice higher and more anxious. I mean the air pocket is about to expire. Another pause. Maybe there's another one further down. I've seen the schematics of the pipe. The undulations are not regular, so there could be another pocket. But what if there isn't? I shout back, chest now rising and falling desperately. God. There is no space, no light. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Get a hold of yourself. Ahmad shouts and it cuts through the madness. I seize hold of his words and allow them to anchor me. We can do this, brother. I take a deep breath. All right, I say. All right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to move as fast as I can along the pipe. I'll hold my breath and I'll search for an air pocket. Regardless of whether I do or don't, I'll be back to let you know, okay? You're a brave man, calls the voice of Ahmad. Don't overdo it, good luck. Okay, I say, heart pounding. I begin to take a series of slow and deep breaths, gently and gradually expanding my lungs, preparing them to hold for as long as they're able. The sound is cold and eerie in the darkness, steady and deep breaths. My chest rises and falls. I shuffle back along the pipe, my face pressed against the pipe, the air metallic and oily and grim. I can't hear anything now. The water comes all the way up to the sides of my lips. Shaking, I press my hands against the sides, doing my best to ignore the pain shooting through my right hand wrist. Here we go, Kater. I take my final breath in, my lungs filled to their maximum capacity, and I brace myself against the pipe using my hands and feet to push myself further along. The air is lost and I'm completely submerged beneath the water. It forms a constant, steady roaring rumble in my ears. I use anything that I can to increase the distance that I'm able to move. My elbows, my knees, heels, my shoulders. I use them all to search for leverage. Inch by inch, faster than before, I force myself through the pipe. My heart pounds. The beat is loud, so, so loud. My chest trembles, but I keep moving as far as I can, inch by inch, inch by inch. Don't panic. If you don't find air, then there's really nothing for us. We'll suffocate or drown or worse in the belly of the pipe, and we may never be discovered. I have to keep moving, inch by inch. My hands reach a particularly oily section of the pipe and instead of pressing against the sides, they slip right off. In a blink, my momentum is lost, and I fumble and splutter in terror as I realize that my means of propulsion have now failed me. No, I think with flashes of terrible urgency. No, no. Bubbles unseen escape from my lips as I writhe in the darkness.
suffocating in the cold embrace of the rusted beast. Please, I beg, sending up prayers to a god that I have neglected, desperately searching for a workable surface. My foot finds a subtle groove and I'm able to push myself another inch, and from there I'm able to move another. My journey continues but I am rewarded with no relief, because soon I will need to breathe in. My lungs have already begun to ache, and if I don't find another pocket of air then I'll have to return through the pipe, back the way that I came, back past these slippery and oily walls. What if I get stuck on the way back? What if I don't get back in time? How the heck was this allowed to happen? I am overcome with a sudden burst of rage and bubbles spill through my clenched teeth as I force myself deeper and deeper through the water. As hastily as I'm able, my lungs start to burn. I'm going to run out of air. Just a little further, I can search a little further. I'm going to run out of air and I'm going to die. Just a little further. I can do it. I know I can do it. And with a sudden gasp and a great shuddering breath inwards, I almost laugh in desperate thankfulness as the angle of the pipe is subtly changed and I feel my face emerge into a fresh new pocket of air. It is not fresh, of course, but in that moment it's the sweetest air that I've ever tasted. Then I come to a stop and allow some great and rasping breaths, filling and replenishing my lungs. Thank God, is all that I can murmur, over and over. Thank God, thank God, I call myself. And once I have my breath, I try shouting. I don't think that he'll be able to hear me, but I try anyway. I receive no response, so I try knocking a rhythm on the pipe. There is still no response, so regretfully, I prepare for the return journey. I'm scared, of course, but I now know that it can be done, that there is air waiting safely for me on the other side. So I fill my lungs once again and shuffle back through the pipe, feet first this time back towards Ahmad's location. I use the material of my diving suit to help me pass by the oily section, and I emerge back into the former pocket, spluttering and coughing. Oh good lord, Ahmad shouts. Kadar, you took your time. I thought I thought you might have. It's alright, I reply. We can make it. There's another pocket ahead. Now listen and I go on to explain the distance and what he'll need to do. And then finally, for the third and hopefully final time, we force ourselves through the watery darkness, back beneath and through the pipe, with the promise of the next air pocket, our guiding light. Inch by inch, as fast as I can, praying that Ahmad is able to keep up. And then as before, my face emerges into the new air pocket, but I continue moving along to allow space for Ahmad. The seconds pass, and just as I'm beginning to fret, I hear his coughing, the sound of great lungfuls of swallowed air as he breathes it in. Yes, I shout, banging my good fist on the pipe. We did it, we did it, brother. Yes, he splutters. Yes, we did. And then he releases what sounds like a laugh, and it fills my heart with hope. Come on, I shout to him. Let's keep on going. And so we do on our journey through the pipe. Inch by inch, as the hours pass by, the timeless hours in the perpetual watery darkness. 
My joints ache, my muscles are tense and throb with exertion, but I have to keep going. There's nothing else for it. Our air pocket comes to an end, and as with before, I scout ahead. My have to, of course, as there's simply no way possible for a mod to pass me by. After holding my breath for another painful period of time, I am blessed with the discovery of a new breathable space, and so we continue in the same manner. These air pockets, however, grow shorter and shorter as we progress, much to my quiet alarm, but there is still just enough and so our journey continues. Every time that I have to hold my breath and go on ahead, it is a cruel exercise in willpower and mental strength. But I do my duty. I have to. We have to get out. We have to get out. An exhausting struggle through the pipe comes to a temporary halt as we reach an air pocket, a mere three or four meters in length. I start with fright as my bad shoulder knocks up against something hard and cold. It moves a little in response to the pressure that I exert upon it, so it isn't a blockage of any kind. Could it be? My heart leaves. Wriggling, squirming in the pipe, I do my best to bring my good hand up towards my head. It is not a quick process and requires some uncomfortable maneuvers, but eventually my hand can reach my neck and beyond, and my fingers explore the mysterious object. Despite everything, a grin spreads across my face and I cry out loud with joy. Ahmad, I shout. Ahmad, I found a tank. I think, yes, it's all connected. It's all here. A tank, he replies. What do you mean? I mean an oxygen tank, Ahmad. It's all in one piece. The breathing tube, yes, it's all here. That's fantastic, he exclaims. How many are there? My enthusiasm drops. I shuffle further down the pipe, searching blindly in the darkness for evidence of a potential second set of diving gear. Despite my silent pleas, however, there's only one. I can only find one here, I tell my comrade, but there might be another one further down. This is a game changer. We can do this. We can get out. Whose tank is it, Kedar? Ahmad asked me. I think my own was about half full. Yes, likewise, I reply. What about Amir's? Amir's, Ahmad begins hesitating. Kadar, I think that Amir's was almost empty. I take a deep breath. Right, I reply. Well, still, this will help. I'll use it now and I'll see if I can find another set of little further along. Wish me luck. Good luck, man, Ahmad says. Godspeed. I check the tank over as best I can. I hold the mouthpiece around my lips, giving it a few test breaths, and then on I go. Back beneath the water, though this time armed with the tank to help me along my way, I grunt and shift my body around, shuffling through the pipe, squirming my way along. And I find what will come to be the final air pocket of its type. A mere meter long, not even big enough for a mod and I to share at the same time. And to my growing frustration, there's no sign of a second tank. And so I push deeper. Onwards, through the pipe, breathing with the tank, pushing it along with me as I go. Now I discover to my bitter amusement what could well be my second missing flipper. 
but there is still no second tank and no further air pockets either. Clenching my fist, I realize that I need to go back before Ahmad starts worrying. So I make the painstaking return journey in a time that to my friend must feel like hours. But at last, I return to our shared location and inform him of the disappointing news. He is quiet as I relay my findings and then he says in a soft voice, Kedar, I think that this is the end of the road for me. There's no use in me going any further. I think, I think that I'll have to wait here. I begin to protest, but my words die in my mouth. I mean, what is there for me to say? He's right, of course. It's a harsh truth, but he's absolutely right. He'll simply have to stay behind. The next leg of the journey I'll have to do alone. A sudden rush of emotion swells up inside me and I force it back down. There's a time and a place. I try not to consider the fact that this may be the last time that I'll ever hear his voice. Perhaps I've heard both of their voices for the very last time. No, time and a place, keep moving. Ahmad, I begin, fumbling for some words that'll do the moment justice, but he interrupts. See you soon, buddy, he says in the dark. I'm not able to reply immediately, but when I do, I say to him, Yes, for sure. See you soon, buddy. And with that, I'm gone. I force myself further along the tank, crawling and shuffling, and I'm submerged. My breathing is loud through the tube connected to my mouth, and when I reach the final air pocket, I allow myself a second to pause, to steal my constitution, and then this pocket too was left behind. On I go, underwater. The rest of my journey will be underwater, and since I cannot see, there's no way to tell how much air is left in the tank. If it was minor or mods, then I should have hours to spare. If it was a mirror as well, no point in being coy. If it's a mirror, then I'll likely die down here, unless I'm blessed with another surprise air pocket. It's not impossible, I tell myself as I crawl through the pipe water all around me. It's not impossible. And yet as the hours go by, there are no more air pockets to discover. Just more pipe. The endless, claustrophobic dark of the tunnel. How far have I come? No idea. It's impossible to tell, really. And I don't even know which way I'm heading. If it's north, then there's hope. If south, then this whole venture was pointless anyway. I'll never make it to Azrak too. Azrak 1, on the other hand, for Azrak 1, hope remains. There's still hope. Onwards through the pipe. Through the oily and poisoned water, my elbows burn with pain from the friction. My shoulders have been rubbed raw, my feet are developing painful blisters from the places that I've been forced to press them against the pipe for leverage, over and over. And my neck, my neck is killing me. It hurts to turn my head too far in either direction. I just grit my teeth and keep on going. It's too late to stop now. I must keep going. On and on and on. God, give me strength. I mutter to myself as my muscles contract and sting. Give me strength to see this through. Thinking about a mod about a mirror all alone just like me, it helps propel me forwards. 
I can't give up, but not while they're counting on me. I could never do that. I could never do that to them, not ever. And so on I go. Endless, ceaseless dark. Endless, ceaseless torture of the pipe. Except, except it's not endless. Not as luck would have it. The good news regarding my oxygen tank is that it definitely wasn't a mirror's. If it was, it would have expired by now. The bad news is that I've been needing deeper and deeper breaths to fill my lungs. And soon the oxygen that the tank can spare me just won't be enough. It won't go on forever. I have found no other tanks along my journey. It's just the one on my person currently and then that's it. Game over. Come on, you pipe. I hissed through the mouthpiece. You can't go on forever, you can't. And of course it doesn't. My head bashes against hard metal. Huh? I murmur in confusion. I try to continue on along my journey, but the way is blocked. I simply cannot go any further. My first thought is one of panic. I fear that I have reached some kind of wall in the pipe, one that shouldn't exist. That I've come all this way to find nothing more than a dead end. Upon a little inspection, however, I realize that a space is opened up above my head. I squirm around and for the first time in hours and hours, I'm able to change positions and to sit upright. My back cracks and a rush of unbelievable relief and muscle tension flows through me. I bring up my hands to feel around me in the darkness and I almost shout for joy. The pipe has reached its end. It's going up now vertically up through the sea towards the surface. We came north, I laugh, the cracks of hope widening flowing into me like rivers of silver. We've been traveling north the whole time. The end of the pipe. Upwards now. Upwards to the installation at Azrak 1. Into salvation. Unless I take stock and consider the choice that now faces me. If I'm going to push onwards, then this really is it. It's a coin flip for life or death. There's not much air left in the tank. And if I climb this pipe to discover the worst, if this pipe has been stoppered or plugged, then definitively for me, there will be no way out. I really will reach a dead end. All hope will be lost and I'll drown down here with nowhere to go. No way forwards and no way back. I shake my head. There's no choice here, not really. It's all willpower. I don't have enough air in my tank to get back to Ahmad even if I wanted to. It's only forwards, forwards and upwards. Alright, I murmur, bubbles spilling. Here we go. And I begin my slow and deliberate ascent. Back pressed against the pipe behind me, knees and calves against the pipe in front. Up I go, kicking at times, half swimming, half shimmying up the pipe. Up the pipe to the surface, slowly but surely grimacing through the strain and the pain. And still, it's so dark, so unbelievably dark. The lack of light does not fill me with confidence. If the pipe was not stoppered, surely I would be able to see some light, right? I open my eyes in the water. The salt and the oil stings like crazy, but I need to see. Or try to see at the least. But there's nothing. There's no hint of light at all. And don't lose faith, I tell myself, screwing my eyes tight shut again. Just keep going. 
This vertical section of the pipe is unlike the one that we were sucked down. This part here goes all the way up to the surface, up to the bustle and the relative commotion of Azrak 1. Except it won't be bustling right now, of course. I hesitate, taking a deep, strained breath through the mouthpiece, grunting with the strain. Thinking about it, the place could be entirely deserted. I don't even know what time it is. I've been crawling through the pipe for hours upon hours. I'm not sure of the exact time, but I'm exhausted. I'm starving and my oxygen is about to expire. If I recall correctly, in fact, the site won't even be open tomorrow. I rack my brains and try to remember. When are they all off site? Was it tomorrow or was it the day after? What if everybody's gone back to shore? What if the site's empty and what if nobody's there to hear me? What if the pipe is stoppered? What if, what if? I bellow in frustration and continue my ascent. Each breath becomes hard work. I'm starting to feel lightheaded, but there's nowhere to go but up. And this section of the pipe can't be longer than 80 meters or so. So surely if it was open, I would see the light, right? Wouldn't I see the light? Please, I whisper, as I open my eyes again, squinting through the darkness. Terrified that at any second I'll hit a barrier or a stopper, and my journey will come to an abrupt and bitter end. Any second, at any moment, I could strike the ceiling and I'll be trapped. In the very next second, I emerge from the water. I hear the sounds of splashing as my head breaks free of the surface of water. I'm still in complete darkness, but I've reached the top. Air. I pull off the mouthpiece and suck it all down, refilling my lungs with far greater ease and rubbing and brushing the oily water from my face and eyes. I made it. I said to no one in particular, my voice echoing around the narrow little space afforded me. But now, now I have come to perhaps the final hurdle. How cruel would it be, I think, how cruel to make it so far and then to be denied rescue. So close and yet so far. I squirm and bring up my good arm with my good hand. I reach it up above me, feeling through the darkness as the water spills and drips from my elbow. A few inches above my head, I feel the lid of the pipe screwed tight shut. My heart starts pounding again. Come on, please, please. I search desperately for a release mechanism, or a valve that will open the pipe from the inside. But alas, just as I had suspected, there is no such valve. I bring up my other hand and try to force open the lid. I try to spin it to shift it, but nothing works, nothing at all and there will be no one on the other side. I mean, why would there be? Their shift is over. They'll have all left the site by now, cross back to the shore. I'm stuck. After everything, I'm just as trapped as a mirror and as a mod. I start pounding desperately on the lid. I bang on the pipe as hard as I can, and I start to scream. I start shouting, though the sounds will be muffled. From the outside, my shouts for help will sound just like a load of moaning and groaning potentially even mistaken for the general rumble of the pipe itself. Help! I scream, slamming both my fists in the metal with all my remaining force, caring not for these spikes of pain that shoot through my broken wrist. Panic threatens to overtake me, now at this final stage of my journey. Help! I cry, slamming the lid and kicking the pipe, making as much noise as I'm able to before my constitution breaks.
Anyone? I roar into the darkness and with the sound of a grate and sudden grinding directly above my head, the lid shifts into curved crack of light spills blindingly into the pipe. I gasp with astonishment, the wind taken from my sails and I slump back down into the water with a splash. My eyes are forced closed and the world beyond my sealed eyelids is a dazzling orange red. I don't even know what to say. I'm too afraid to believe what is happening. I sense somebody talking to me, their voices confused and alarmed, and they grab me by the diving suit, by the shoulders, and with some considerable degree of effort, they haul me out and onto the platform that surrounded the pipe's exit. I'm unable to help myself from weeping. I still cannot see, but the tears streak the salt and the oil from my face. I have never felt so free. I turn and wince and stretch my arms and legs in ways that they were unable to for what felt like ages. I feel a hand squeeze my shoulder. A bottle of cool, refreshing, and above all clean water is gently poured over my face. Cater, comes a familiar voice. Cater, what on earth? He fumbles for words. Care to explain yourself, Cater? What is this? I finally managed to open my eyes, just a sliver, gradually painfully adjusting to the light from the flood lamps all around, and I'm greeted by the sight of the only employee still at his station, long after his shift had come to an end. He stares at me, his scruffy red hair and his beard a mess, his expression almost comical in its confusion. A dry chuckle escapes my lips. Hello, Zahir, I mutter. You know, I don't think I've ever been happier to see anyone in my entire life. And this, my friends, is the truth. The hours that followed passed by in a whirlwind. The company and the authorities were alerted immediately and the helicopters were sent up into the sky. And rescue boats were out in the water within the hour. The ruined habitat site was investigated and safely secured. Multiple teams of divers were sent down and they traversed the entire length of the pipe away into the night, knocking and tapping on the metal and hunting diligently for Amir and Ahmad. There was tragically no response. I remember pacing up and down in one of the control rooms, fielding calls from family in the presence of several officers and officials, as the pressure in the pipe was carefully leveled, as it was disconnected at the safest point and opened for inspection. I remember the way that I reacted when I was told the news the next morning. After a long and sleepless night, my arm bandaged. I remember the breath escaping me and I remember collapsing into the nearest chair. That's impossible, I murmured. That, there's no way. But the bodies of Amir and Ahmad were discovered together, about ten or so meters north from where we were suckered down. It was ruled that the two men had died on impact within the pipe, almost instantaneously. It's likely they weren't even aware of what had happened. Their last conscious moments, I'm told, most probably took place in the habitat itself before the disaster. To this, I say nothing. I simply look out the window as the morning sun reflects and glimmers, sparkling in the gentle waves of the sea far below. Today's episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. Whether your resolution is to save money, eat better, or stress less, HelloFresh is here to help you do all three. 
Say hello to your most delicious year yet with fresh ingredients and chef-crafted recipes at a price you'll like, delivered right to your door. Make saving time your breeziest resolution with quick, convenient recipes. Just choose your meals and select your delivery date. HelloFresh handles the meal planning and shopping, so all that you have to do is open your weekly box of pre-portioned ingredients and step-by-step -step recipes to get cooking. My favorite recipe recently has been the meatloaf with creamy thyme sauce. It's hearty and delicious, which is perfect for this time of year. To get started, go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreepsFree and use code MrCreepsFree for free breakfast for life. That's one breakfast item per box while your subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at HelloFresh.com slash MrCreepsFree with code MrCreepsFree. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. I'm a security guard who works the night shift at an art gallery. Written by The Eagle Strikes. I want the job, I said. It was two years ago and I could vividly recall every aspect of that interview. The innocence of those four words. The stillness of the gallery. My befuddled reaction to Amy Andrews, the gallery owner whose questions had unsettled me. Her composure never waned. Are you a spiritual man, Mr. Hall? Miss Andrews asked. Yes, I answered. Are we talking about the art? I can't say that I'd be able to give philosophical or religious insights. Oh, don't worry. Miss Andrews replied, smiling. I'm not trying to trip you up. In a way, my question does relate to the paintings, but perhaps not in the way that you might expect. I was a police officer for many years before working as a security guard at the embassy, I said. I have plenty of references. The gallery owner raised a hand, smiling politely. Oh, I've seen your CV. I promise that you don't have to fight your corner, Mr. Hall. I know you're physically capable, but this job takes a toll on a mental level. I nodded my head, ignorantly believing that I understood her. I know, I've worked many solo night shifts at the embassy, but I can handle it. Well, that's not what I mean, she replied. Do you know why my gallery exhibits a permanent display of my sister's artwork? To honor her memory, I said. I saw that news clip a couple of years ago about her admittance to the local psychiatric ward. Harper Andrews, right? I'm sorry, that must have been tough on your family. Not as tough as Harper found it, Miss Andrews replied. Her artwork tells the story of her decline into sickness. Not sickness of the mind, but sickness of the soul. She faced something and captured it in these paintings to protect humanity. Hearing her speak, I thought Amy seemed just as unwell as her sister, but I would soon learn that it was no delusion. Every night on the job is terrifying, but none so much as the first. And I'll never forget Miss Andrews' parting words as she walked out of the door. At night, the paintings must be closely guarded. Left unobserved for too long, they can well. Just make sure you keep watch. What is this, a night at the museum? I mused, trying not to chuckle.
Oh no, far worse than fiction. The first hour of my shift was blissfully mundane. Basking in the blue glow of the gallery's security lighting, a perturbing painting eyeballed me from the far wall. It depicted a lanky, pencil-thin man with frightfully long legs and a pair of white eyes which seemed to follow me around the room, as all freakish eyes and paintings do. As I strolled around the gallery, following Miss Andrews' strict rule of observing the paintings often, I took a closer look at the white-eyed man. I shivered at his janky jaw which hung abnormally loosely. He wore jet black trousers, but his monstrous bony torso was shirtless, and he was the farthest a man could be from looking human. I stopped to read the plaque beneath the painting of the haunting figure. The exactor. The one who exacts torture. He longs to break free. He will devour mankind. I hurried past the painting, reasonably certain that nobody would ever dream of stealing artwork so horrifying, and no need to guard it too closely. But the gallery didn't exactly become more joyous as I continued my round. They were petrifying. I should have given the paintings more than a cursory glance before applying for the job position. Another painting portrayed a young girl, no more than ten years of age, who wore a bright red pinafore plated brunette hair and a blank face, not figuratively, blank. In place of eyes and nose and a mouth, there was only skin, taut flesh painted with smooth brush strokes that made Harper's intentions abundantly clear. The artist had not accidentally smudged the face, she had purposefully neglected to give the little girl any features. Harper's youth dies. As we age, we slowly come to life. We sin, they know that, they know everything. There were countless paintings of dreadful scenes too. Cities in ruin, the end of the world. Endless infernos of melting flesh. And they were the lucky ones who were offered a swift mercy. The survivors in the apocalyptic paintings were tortured in gruesome ways by dreadful inhuman men like the one in the first painting. I usually have a strong stomach, but something about those paintings filled me with unbearable dread. The apocalyptic art seemed so visceral. As I viewed it, I was certain that I heard the screams of the last humans on Earth, felt the heat of the flames on my skin, saw the exactors move. And then there was a painting of the art gallery, the plaque read, Prison. They entered our world, so I locked them here. Feeling suitably terrified, I scurried to the sofa by the gallery's entrance and plopped myself down. I work a day job and the night shift is just my way of making ends meet. The exhaustion of that jam-packed day finally hit me. It was only when I sat down on the sofa that fatigue walloped me like a wall. My eyelids closed. An hour later, a thrumming sound startled me awake. I twisted my head to see a notification on my phone, chuckling in relief. I opened the message from Kara, my wife, welcoming the distraction from my isolated, soundless night shift. But it was an odd message. I was telling my mom about your new job and she said that you should look for another one. 
Apparently, there's always adverts for the night shift on Facebook, and her friend's husband had a mental breakdown after one shift. He won't talk to anyone about what happened. There was another thrumming sound, but it wasn't a vibration from my phone. It was a muffled voice. My head snapped up in time to catch a silhouette vanishing behind one of the gallery walls. I managed to stifle the scream, but I lost my composure and clammed up. I contemplated running out of the gallery, but something stopped me and it wasn't the prospect of being fired. It was those paintings of Armageddon. I rose to my feet using the flashlight on my phone to illuminate the dimly lit gallery floor. That muffled sound repeated again haunting me, a ghostly groan of some emotion that I couldn't quite place, but I knew it terrified me. And when I rounded the corner, I found myself facing something utterly inexplicable. The girl from Harper's youth dies. A young version of Harper, I could only assume. I trembled on the spot as she took clunky steps towards me with her frail and near-skeletal legs. She continued to groan, seemingly speaking beneath the flesh that covered her entire face. I can't understand you. I whispered in horror as the ghastly girl stopped a foot in front of me. I found myself leaning forwards, driven by a force beyond my control. And then the most horrifying thing happened. My cheek twisted to the side, allowing my ear to melt through the phantom pool of the girl's face. I screamed silently, terrified to find that I was unable to move my body or utter a sound. Then with my ear beneath the flesh on Harper's horrendous and featureless face, I could finally hear the words that she had been repeating in a muffled and ghoulish voice. Why did you close your eyes? The malformed ghost asked in a distorted cry. My body was suddenly hurled to the floor and the little girl fled into the shadows. My eyes shot to the far wall and I found that my gut had achieved the impossible. It sank to a deeper realm of fear. He was gone. The exactor was a blank canvas. The horrible entity had escaped its painting. Harper's disembodied voice whispered beside my ear, scaring the life out of me. Find him. He's hiding. I looked up at the ghostly girl's painting. Harper had returned to the canvas, but she was adopting a different pose. Her index finger was pointing at the painting of the art gallery. I yelped in fright, seeing what she had noticed. Behind one of the painted windows on the empty top floor of the building, that inhuman man stood and watched me. Legs shaking, I walked across the gallery to the set of stairs in the back corner. They led to an out-of-bounds floor. Miss Andrews made that abundantly clear. But she also made it clear that I had to keep my eyes on the artwork, and I failed at that. I didn't really have any options. Quivering, I crept up the creaky wooden stairs to a floor that was littered with unhung paintings. The frames were shrouded in white sheets, and at the far end of the room illuminated only by the moonlight which poured through the murky glass panes, I saw something truly terrifying. The exactor. He stood as tall as the ceiling and his large form was crouching over an uncovered painting. As I crept closer, I saw what had captivated the terrible creature. It was one of Harper's apocalyptic paintings, depicting a world in flames, 
in the exactor was melting its shriveled, unclothed arm with the canvas. Much as young Harper sank my ear through her flash. However, as I approached the abomination, casting my flashlight upon him, its flash had started to sizzle, and it unleashed a hideous hissing sound. At first, I thought that the light had heard it, but then I realized it had become aware of the guard's watchful eyes upon it. I finally realized the power of keeping watch. I knew why I was there. Cast it away. Harper's voice whispered. How? I cried. The man spun around and I screamed at the sight of his wretched white eyes. They were worse than the flesh and he was far larger than he had appeared in the painting. The entity lunged at me, coiling its bony hands around my neck, squeezing the light out of my soul. I slipped into the darkness and the exactor howled at me, a howl that sounded like a boat's horn. Tell it to return to its cell, Harper croaked. Tell it that you won't stop looking at it until it does what you say. I wheezed, watching flickering images in the exactor's blank eyes, prophecies of a direful destruction, a fiery vision of mankind's end at the hands of this terrifying apparition and its demonic army. He intended to scare me, but the thought of such a horrific future only motivated me to keep my eyes open. I won't stop, I said, slowly choking, until you stop. In human flesh, burning beneath the weight of my vision, the exactor screeched in fury, but I thought the world might already be doomed. If I had passed out, I would have left the demon unguarded and free to wreak havoc upon mankind but in some favorable twist of fate it released my neck. And I fell to the ground and it too must have been close to death. I crawled downstairs and the canvases were filled with paint once more. Everything was back in its place and the strangest thing is that I didn't hang up my hat. I didn't call it a day. When Miss Andrews came to the gallery at six in the morning, she seemed fully prepared to watch another traumatized guard quit the job. But I didn't. I couldn't. Not after seeing the exactor's apocalyptic desire. Too much is at stake. For those of you who missed the first post, my night shifts as an art gallery security guard are more horrifying than anything a person should endure. My job isn't to protect the paintings. It's to protect humanity from the paintings. Each canvas is a paranormal cell. The artist, Harper Andrews, even contained a terrifying interpretation of her younger self in a portrait as a safeguard. The faceless child isn't even the worst thing in there. There are paintings of mankind's doom. Hellfire, Armageddon. And then there's the painting of the exactor. An inhuman man tall as a tree, with woefully white eyes and a limp jaw. He and his malformed minions are imprisoned in the gallery's exhibits, and they seek freedom. They long to eternally torture mankind in unimaginable ways. They plot a fate worse than death. I've spoken about my first shift, but I'm sure you didn't think that I had gone two years without another incident. One particular evening about four months ago, a text conversation with my wife took a horrifying turn. You can quit the day job, surely. You're making plenty of money from the gallery. 
You just want to spend more time with me. Oh, you love me. Well, it is a little suspicious that you spend so much time away from home. Have you got another woman on the side? Hmm, Amy's hot in a squint-your-eyes kind of way. Now there's a higher chance of me hooking up with one of Harper's demons. Ooh, that reminds me. I just bought one of the paintings I couldn't resist. Crap, I should have told my wife about my work. I should have told her about the terrible nature of the things that I guard. She never would have bought the artwork if she had known it were more than paint on a canvas. After reading her message, I hurriedly rang her. Oh, please tell me you were joking, I said shaking. Are you okay, Frank? You sound weird, Kara replied. Why did you have to buy one of those paintings? I asked. What? Oh, I know you like macabre things, she chortled. Don't be a baby, you stare at those paintings all night. What's so wrong with having one of them in our living room? I don't even... I don't understand why Amy would sell their sister's work, I said. Oh, I pulled her aside for a chat after you showed me around the gallery. Honestly, I can't believe it took you over a year to give me a tour. Such beautiful paintings. Disturbing but beautiful. Harper Andrews is incredibly talented. But what happened to her sad? Kara sighed. You just made an offer that Amy accepted, I asked. She claimed to have little attachment to it. She said it isn't one of the paintings that demands eyes upon it. Seemed a rude comment because I think it's as great as the rest of her sister's art, but... Kara began. I have to go. I interrupted, hanging up the phone. It was an hour or so before my night shift, but I arrived early. Amy Andrews was engrossed in conversation with the last few gallery visitors of the day, but I quickly dragged her away from the crowd. Fury frothed to the surface of my lips. Why did you sell one of the paintings to Kara? I asked. Miss Andrews answered in an eerily flat tone. I come from a wealthy family, Mr. Hall, but I'm not that wealthy. I have limited income streams and I have to keep the gallery's lights on. Sure, I make money from memberships and fundraising events, but I try to sell paintings too. But Harper, you know they need to be watched at all times, I protested. Oh, not all of them, she said. And that was when I realized which painting was missing from the gallery. There was an empty spot on the wall above the plaque that read, Harper's youth dies. What have you done? My sister's demented self-portrait might be horrifying, Mr. Hall, but it doesn't intend to harm us. It's not one that needs to be watched. And your wife paid handsomely for it. Miss Andrews explained, shrugging. I gripped my employer's arm in a moment of madness that could have cost my job and for all I knew, the future of mankind. On that first night, young Harper was the entity that kept watch over me. I hissed furiously. Your sister painted herself for a reason. Everything in this gallery has a purpose. Don't you understand that? For a flicker of a moment, I was certain that something flashed in Amy Andrews' eyes. Something black and the corner of her lips twitched as if to reveal that she were well aware of what she had done, but her mouth quickly returned to its normal position. I pay you to watch over the exhibits. You shouldn't need anyone or anything to watch over you. I screw this, I spat. I'm going home and I'm bringing that painting back with me. Miss Andrews huffed, glancing at her watch. 
55 minutes until your shift begins. I would hurry. I drove home, mind racing with the horror of Miss Andrew's crooked grin. Did she intentionally sell the painting to sabotage the gallery? Don't be foolish. If she were that evil, she could have just left the paintings unwatched, freeing the exactor into the world. I tried to still my throbbing heartbeat as I pulled onto our street. After hurriedly parking, I didn't even close the car door behind me. I raced into our darkened home and started screaming at the top of my lungs. Kara, where are you? In the living room, she shouted. Why are we yelling? I rushed into the room and my chest loosened a bit. There was no sign of destruction, just my wife sitting on the sofa in a well-lit room. Harper's youth dies hung on the wall, but the girl's a ghastly form remained in its canvas. Oh, thank God, I exhaled. What is your deal with this creepy little girl? Kara asked, laughing. I just, I have to take it back, Kara. I'll make sure that Miss Andrews gives us a refund. My wife rose to her feet and walked over to the painting, stroking Harper's featureless face. I shuddered in terror, waiting for the ghoul to leap free from its frame. I assumed that she wouldn't hurt us, but I wasn't certain of anything. Don't come and give her a stroke, my wife teased. She doesn't bite. I looked at my phone. I had a half hour until the start of my shift. Miss Andrews had made it clear what would happen if I weren't on time. I feared that she might do something worse than fire me. She might leave the paintings unattended. I'll get you a better painting, I said. Something creepy from another gallery. Just anything other than a Harper Andrews piece. Please. How would it make you happier if I were to draw a smiley face on her? Kara asked. My wife dipped her finger into her glass of water, and I cried in agony as she drew a crude pair of dots and a pencil-thin smile on Harper's featureless face. Kara frowned at my gaping maw when she finished. Hey, relax, we own it, she said. And besides, it'll dry, don't worry. I walked over to her and seized her hands tightly, taking a deep breath. Kara, I said gently, I'm begging you. She frowned. Oh, I know that look, Frank. You're actually scared. Why? Just tell me and I'll let you take the painting back. You saw a ghost when you were young, didn't you? I asked. Kara nodded. Uh, my dad, shortly after the car crash. Hard to believe it, but I did. Well, I know you believe. You said that you once saw your grandma's ghost, didn't you? I gripped her hands tightly and nodded. Right, so we believe in spirituality. While this painting, I mean all of Harper's paintings, are gateways to, to something unearthly. And that is why I guard them. I'm sorry that it took me so long to tell you. My wife hung her head and shook it. You talk in your sleep, you know. You've been having nightmares for months. Talking about an entity and the end of the world. I knew there was something wrong with you. I... The light suddenly cut out and a wisp of wind like a hissing voice filled the room. Kara shrieked and leapt into my arms. I shuddered, keeping her close to my chest so that she couldn't see what I saw. Harper's youth dies. The watery marks on Harper's featureless face glowed faintly in the darkness, a dim white light. 
and the most terrifying part was that the droplets which formed the smile had inexplicably transformed into a sulk. May I take it? I asked Kara in a whisper. She nodded, face burrowed deeply into my chest, and so I guided her to the bedroom and instructed her to shut the door. I checked my phone, 20 minutes until my shift. I seized the painting from the wall, sprinted out of the house and lunged into my car. When I arrived at the art gallery, the lights were off and Amy's car was nowhere in sight. Fortunately, I was on time for my shift, but I had no way of knowing how long she had left the place unattended. I hurried inside and immediately hung Harper's youth dyes above its plaque. The gallery was full again. I looked at the painting of the exactor. I was relieved to see that the monstrosity was still encaged. But something still felt wrong. There was a churning chasm in my gut. You're not in the art gallery. Harper's entity whispered in a distorted voice. I finally saw what she meant. The colors of my surroundings had started to swirl. The gallery walls, the floor of the paintings, and even my hands looked murky. The world was composed of paint. I was composed of paint. And when I looked into the street, I saw the towering edges of a painting's frame. I was trapped in prison. Harper's depiction of the art gallery, which you may remember from my first post. And I knew that I was trapped in the painting because I could see the real world beyond the canvas. My memories flooded back. When I had entered the real art gallery, the exactor had tricked me. He stood in his painting and everything seemed fine. I looked into those horrible white eyes and that's when its mouth tore open to swallow me. I screeched into the nothingness. Never had I felt such a nightmarish horror before, not even on my first night in the gallery. I felt dead worse than dead. I thought that I had entered hell itself. I thought that I had failed at my job and the rapture had commenced. I thought of so many sickening possibilities as the exactors blackened void had engulfed me. Squirming inside his darkened body, I was carried by the inhuman man across the gallery floor and he aggressively spat me into the canvas of prison. I had forgotten that. He made me forget that I had left the real world. It's looking for an exit. Harper's voice croaked. Me too, I cried. I looked at Harper's painting and she wasn't there. In her place, there was a doorway with a flickering green exit sign above it. I felt the brushstrokes of that painted world stretch and strain. The canvas was crushing me and I didn't belong there. My painted form had tightened, and I rushed to the doorway that Harper had created. Terrified of what might happen if I were to stay in that false world for a moment longer. As my hand met the painted canvas within the painted canvas, my body liquefied and merged with the exit on the canvas. A blackness still and serene enveloped me. And then I found myself lying on a tiled floor, a real tiled floor, choking. Back in reality, I gazed across the gallery and my eyes met a terrible sight. The contents of every painting had spilled onto the floor. The exactor stood proudly amidst his minions, plodding in a sharp whisper. I had expected a cacophonous roar of noise from the apocalyptic demons but something about the near silence of their scheming was even more frightening. 
Still in the distance, I could hear human screams again. The apocalyptic sound of mankind being tortured in an endless oblivion. The agonizing cries were almost tuneful, in a terribly dissonant way. Choral screaming, humanity's horrifying final song. Suddenly, in unearthly unison, the exactor's minions, smaller versions of him but no less terrifying, snapped their heads backwards to face me, as if the brutal bones in their necks had jellied. I screamed at their upside-down faces which hung over their unclothed backs. They were white-eyed and slack-jawed, eyeing me from the middle of the room. They wheezed as their skin sizzled beneath the weight of my eyes upon them. Back to your paintings, I feebly shrieked. There was nothing commanding about my tone. Pure terror drove me, and the exactor could see that. His eyes pierced mine as they had on that first night. In them I saw nothing, the absence of anything. And by that, I mean the end of everything. The end of man and the end of ends. He tried to fill me with dread beyond imagination and he succeeded. But it was the same fateful error that he had made on that first night. I thought of Kara, my parents, my friends, everyone that I love. That was what motivated me while my eyes watered under the strain of looking at those horrid things. Ghoulish voices chittered that I must either close my eyelids or die. I didn't fall for the entity's egregious schemes. I clenched my fists, armed only with my eyes and sheer willpower. The minions retreated first, flesh burning and they scurried backwards, dragging their upside down heads and misshapen limbs with them back into the flames of their painted paradise. And it'll always be a dream, I told myself. But the exactor remained, mouth gaping so wide that it dropped past his shoulders. His flesh scorched, wisps of smoke billowed from his shirtless torso and raggedy trousers. In one final fit of rage, he took powerful strides towards me and outstretched one of his slender arms. I caught his wrist before those gnarled, ghastly fingers could wrap around my neck, and the pain was unexplainable. It was a deep burning of the mind, not the body. The exactor's last-ditch attempt to incapacitate the guard who was standing between it and the apocalypse. I saw Kara. She was sitting in our living room, smiling at something on the wall. I could only watch in unbridled horror as her flesh melted before my very eyes. Horrifyingly, she continued to smile even when she had been reduced to smoldering, bloody meat on the sofa. The exactor showed me what she saw. On the wall, there hung a painting of her house burning to the ground in the midst of mankind's total annihilation. On the streets, the exactor's minions inflicted unspeakable horrors upon humanity. A demon gutted a woman with the protruding bone from her own severed limb. That's the only scene that I can put into writing. The rest are too dreadful. Wait a minute, it's not real, it's another trick. Kara wouldn't smile at such a thing. My eyes ached under the immense strain of watching that unholy apparition. But the exactor caved first. Unable to bear my eyes upon it, it wriggled free from my grip, taking what appeared to be excruciating steps back to its canvas. And when it returned to its frame, the choral screaming ceased. The gallery was still and silent. 
I spent the rest of my shift standing in that exact spot, eyeballing the paintings before me. I didn't speak and I didn't move. Before I left the building at the end of my shift, I quickly glanced back at prison, the painting that had trapped me. Dread gripped my heart and four months later it still hasn't released me. I can't stop thinking about how it felt to be within that canvas. How will I ever know that I'm in the real world? What if the apocalypse has already happened? I might be living in a painting right now. Well, there you go. Another direful tale from the art gallery. Another near miss. Just a part and parcel of the job, huh? Since my first shift, nothing has been the same. Every passing day feels worse than the last. The impending apocalypse cast the long shadow over my life. I explained everything to Kara and she knows why I can't quit. And now you know that I worry about something other than the exactor. Amy Andrews. Something's wrong with her. Perhaps I should speak to the one person who could actually give me some answers. I think I need to visit the local psych ward. Harper Andrews. The woman who could provide answers to all my questions. Yesterday afternoon, I visited her at the local psychiatric ward. I know why you're here, Harper said. The woman was slender and she wore pristine white attire. Her brunette hair was glistening in the midday sun. It hung in prim and proper plates which made me shudder. She was the spitting image of her painting. Harper's youth dies. That was unnerving given that she was a couple of decades older than the version of herself that she had painted. The paintings, I eventually replied. Harper smiled, motioning at the seat opposite her in the deserted canteen. I nodded awkwardly and slumped into the stiff plastic chair on the other side of the table. A member of staff loitered in the canteen doorway, keeping a watchful eye over us. And two years on the job, right? Harper asked. I think you would have summoned the courage to visit me a long time ago, if this were only about the exactor. I shivered at the very mention of the name, and I quickly glanced at the member of staff, just to ensure that he only stood six feet tall. For a fleeting moment, I thought the nightmarish man from the painting had been hunching in the doorway and watching me. I'm not blaming you, Harper continued. I just want to save time. My sister isn't evil, in fact, she's a kind-hearted woman. And maybe part of her is still in there, but it's not the part that's in control. She longs to free the exactor and the others. I paused for a long time, staring into the dejected eyes of the woman before me. She looked sharp, focused, well. Not at all what I had expected. Why, why haven't you with Amy? I trailed off. Harper sighed, reading my mind. Yeah, I suppose killing her would have brought an end to things, wouldn't it? Yet somewhere deep down, she's still my sister. I'm sorry, and why, you might wonder, hasn't she already freed the creatures from their painted prisons? Now that final question is the one that really needs to be answered, I think, I said. Harper nodded. Do you have your phone with you? Yeah, why? I record my story, she said. I need you to document the knowledge that I'm about to pass on to you. 
Nobody has ever believed me but you well. You've seen what's at stake. The year was 2003 and I was 8 years old and Amy was in her 20s. My birth certainly caused an upheaval. Mom was a full-time lawyer and Dad was a historian. They thought their days of parenting were long behind them. Mom, did I ruin Dad's life? I once asked. Oh, you were the best curveball that life threw at us, darling. My mom promised and we chuckled. And Dad loved us, but he spent so much time abroad. He wasn't quite so busy or successful in his youth. So I think that he worried that he had been a better father to Amy. One fateful day, he sought to rectify that. Machu Picchu, he said. Let's go, you and me. What's in Pikachu? I asked. My dad laughed. Machu Picchu, it's a lost city. I think you'll love it. You could paint it. Your talents are wasted on the dull scenery around here. I didn't think that I would enjoy ancient ruins, but I couldn't pass up the opportunity to spend time with Dad, and he seemed so excited about the place. It was stunning. My eight-year-old brain wasn't immature enough to overlook that. And after hours of watching my father excavate what he called a point of interest, the man finally started to dance jubilantly. I stopped painting to see what enthralled him. The fruit of his labor was a large slab of stone, and it was covered with dreadful etchings of ghastly creatures. My dad started jabbering ecstatically about the magnitude of what he had uncovered. He spent a decade connecting dots between the mysterious vanishings of advanced cultures. They were indicators of a destructive force, a plague greater than anything earthly. He said there were entities which sought to destroy humanity, though their origin remained a mystery. They certainly weren't bound by physical laws. And my father uncovered detailed writings on rituals which successfully contained the abominations. He said salvation always came from imprisoning the entities, but they couldn't be killed and they would always seek freedom. That was what terrified me. They would always seek freedom and my father held their prison in his very hands. He had unearthed something which should have been left alone. When we returned to England, I slipped into my father's study and found his translated text. I had a terrible feeling about the stone slab that he had brought home, and so I studied the ritual that could imprison the entities. It involved detailed drawings and a watcher. But who was watching the drawings while they were buried beneath the earth in Machu Picchu? Well, nobody. My father's research seemed to suggest that the Inca artist in Machu Picchu had uncovered a new ritual, something which allowed the Incas to trap the demons more successfully than their predecessors. If my father had only let it be, you would still be living a normal life, Frank Hall. None of us would be in this mess. But things quickly took a dark turn. My parents started bickering about that stone slab. Dad would obsessively stare at it until the early hours of the morning. He said that it spoke to him. When my mother couldn't take it anymore, she left. Amy and I were distraught and we hated our father. And that was when my sister did something stupid. She destroyed the stone slab with a sledgehammer. Everything quickly fell apart. 
The exactor and his deformed creatures steadily rose from the shattered stone and I fled the room. It was the moment that I had dreaded. The prophecy which had riddled me with nightmares. I locked myself in my room and unboxed the paintings that I had completed in preparation weeks ago. And to imprison the freed demons in a new picture, however, a ritual was required. As many artists had done before me, I dislodged one of my teeth. Bloody gummed and teary from the agony, I started to shakily etch my name into each of the paintings with my baby tooth, and the most horrifying thing happened. One by one, black masses started to slither under my door. The creatures were unwillingly latching into their painted forms. They were being trapped in a fresh prison. The house fell unnaturally still. I crept out of my bedroom and called for my family. When I entered the living room, I shuddered. The demons were gone, but my dad was sitting in his rocking chair. His eyes were vacant and he was smiling. It was a wicked grin, something beyond your darkest imagination. Blood oozed through finger tears in the fabric of his shirt. He had been clawing at his own flesh. He was still alive, but he didn't move a muscle or utter a word. He just grinned. Amy, meanwhile, was curled on the sofa in a fetal position. She was bawling her eyes out, and when the police arrived, they discovered something disturbing. Mom never left. Her body was found in the garden shed, and she had been decomposing for weeks. I never saw the scene, but I vividly remember one of the paramedics throwing up on the grass. Our father went to prison, and Amy became my guardian. I explained everything to her, but she didn't believe me. And so I kept a daily watch over the paintings, and years later, I used my inheritance money to open an art gallery. I thought that it would lessen the burden if other eyes were on the paintings. Amy helped me run the place, and she had her hands in lots of different money pots, so she didn't mind that the gallery was a bit of a money burner. However, one day she changed. She came home from the gallery with a vacant look in her eyes. A look that reminded me of dad. She told me that she finally believed my story. She saw the exactor step out of its painting. I couldn't always be at the gallery, but Amy promised that she would never leave the paintings unattended. She admitted that she had gone out to grab some food before locking up for the evening. If she hadn't returned in time, I suppose that you and I wouldn't be having this conversation right now. The world would have already ended. Anyway, my sister changed over the following years. She grew cold and distant, and I started to see a darkness in her eyes, and she spoke in a voice that wasn't hers. I became so fearful of her and her malevolent smile that I had a nervous breakdown, and that was her ticket. Well, the exactor's ticket. She had me committed to this ward four years ago. I suppose that the exactor thought that without me in the way... She could puppeteer Amy to free him from the painting. All she had to do was make sure that nobody looked at him. But why haven't things already fallen apart? Why did she hire guards to keep watch? Well, she still plays by my rules because I have something that the exactor needs. If it had so wished, that terrifying creature would have driven my sister to kill me, much as it drove my father to kill my mother. But it needs the tooth that I used in the ritual. 
The exactor always uses slaves to achieve that goal. It seeps into people's minds. At its behest, I'm certain my dad must have destroyed whatever ink and tool was used to etch the drawings on the stone slab. So even if Amy were to close her eyes or better yet destroy the paintings, it still wouldn't be enough to free the entities. It sounds like watching them might be unnecessary then, huh? As long as I keep the tooth it and you can just quit your security role and call it a day. No way that the exactor can fulfill its destiny. Right? The problem is that an unwatched exactor, while unable to end the world, becomes freer and freer with every passing moment. Free enough to find me without Amy's help, perhaps, and infiltrate my mind to find the tooth's location. As long as somebody keeps watch, they remain in their paintings. Their real power lies in servants. My dad and now Amy. She visits me often and she only wants one thing from me. The tooth, but I still hold the power. She does what I say. Otherwise, I've threatened to end things. The secret dies with me. The exactor uses her to wear me down, but I'm stronger than it thinks. And that's everything, Frank Hall. The rest is a mystery even to me. I stopped recording at that point and I exhaled deeply. There was so much information to digest. Have you seen the length of that transcript? Sorry to anyone who didn't prepare themselves for such a gargantuan body of text. Amy's trying to sabotage things, I explained. She let Harper's youth dies out of the gallery. Harper sighed. Well, it might be time for me to. No, I didn't mean that, I firmly said. Harper's eyes were brimming with tears. I'm tired, Frank. I'm so tired. I'm only one person. Well, you're not alone, I said. I'll keep watch. She sniffled. And what happens when you reach your breaking point? Maybe this is bigger than us. Maybe we need to tell someone. I scoffed. Like who, the government? You think that would be a good idea? Give the exactor hundreds of minds to infiltrate. It's dangerous enough that your paintings are visible to the public. You and I won't live forever to fight the good fight, Harper pointed out. Well, then we'll keep looking for people to take up the mantle. Or maybe we'll eventually figure out what that Incan artist did to truly seal the lid on these monstrosities, I said. He found a way to put them in the bin for good. No watcher needed. Harper sighed. Well, I guess there's one more thing that you should know. What's that? Well, the tooth, she said. It's in the house. Whoa, stop, I barked. What are you doing? The secret dies with you, remember? Yeah, but Amy's never going to stop looking for it. So you need to keep her away from the base. Harper began. Please, I cried. I don't know why you're telling me this. I just, I have a bad feeling. I looked up to find that the member of staff had left. And that was when the clamp tightened on my gut. The sun seemed to dim and an emptiness filled the room. I know that sounds like a contradiction, but I'm sure Harper felt it too. Her eyes widened. Frank, is there a red Range Rover in the parking lot? Legs trembling, I crept over to the canteen window and squinted. A graying cloud hovered heavily above. Blue sky lay beyond the solitary omen. 
There seemed to be no other visitors beside my white Mitsubishi. There was only a crimson Range Rover. I shrieked in horror. Frank, Harper began. You need to. A splintering sound echoed around the canteen and I spun around to see something sickeningly sinister. Harper's neck had been snapped backwards and her upside down head hung over the back of her chair, much like those menacing exactors in the art gallery so many months ago. In the doorway of the canteen, there stood a figure too tall for the frame. I screamed, squinting my eyes, but it was Amy. She seemed to be a regular height, but I know what I saw for a fleeting second. I chased her out of the building, heart racing as I prepared to meet a similar fate. But the exactor spared me, it had other plans. Besides, Amy was nimble. I was no threat. She had driven away before I could even reach her. That was three hours ago. I know where she's going. The good news is that their family house is in Ireland, so it'll take some time for Amy to get there. The bad news is that it'll take some time for me to get there too. I'm currently waiting for a flight. Tomorrow, the world might end. Cherish your loved ones. I arrived in Ireland after a short flight, but it was too late. The dilapidated house harbored secrets, and though I was armed with Harper's knowledge, the brutish building still intimidated and mystified me. The terror stemmed from more than vines creeping up walls or the graffitied innards of the haunted house. It was the place's unearthly aura, lingering evil from the horrors that unfolded twenty years earlier. Why did Harper have to tell me where she had hidden the tooth? My hypothesis is that the exactor had warmed its way into her mind. Maybe it finally succeeded in tricking her. I blame myself. Harper was careful for so many years. She lowered her guard around me, lost herself for a second, and that was all the exactor needed. As soon as Harper had exhausted her usefulness, she was slaughtered. I can still see her mangled neck draped over the rigid back of that plastic canteen chair. The basement was a lightless hovel that carried a damp smell. I illuminated the cobweb-ridden room with my phone, and something elicited a blood-curdling scream from my hoarse throat. Amy. She was on her knees, shivering in the center of the room. She didn't even shield her eyes from my light. She only stared into my face with a blank and teary expression, and I realized something horrifying. The exactor was gone. I couldn't see the darkness in her eyes anymore, and if the creature had no use for servants, that could only mean one dreadful thing. The end was nigh. A bottle of hydrochloric acid confirmed that. It lay beside a gaping hole in the floorboards woodwork. Amy had destroyed Harper's tooth, the only thing giving our eyes the power to imprison those frightful entities in their painted cells. My, my family's dead, Amy sobbed. It was as if she had been in a trance for years, and only at that moment, decades later, could she finally process the awfulness of what had befallen her loved ones. Don't worry, I said. Soon everybody's going to be dead. The woman bawled and I wanted to emphasize, but I kept seeing her younger sister's neck, the very neck that Amy had viciously snapped several hours before.
it was hard to trust her. How long has it been? I asked, pointing at the acid-formed hole in the floor. I destroyed it shortly before you arrived, within the hour perhaps. Amy absent-mindedly replied. I nodded. How long do you think we have before the world ends? She shrugged. When I freed them as a child, they, they took time slithering out of the slab. They began constructing legions of creatures from the very dust of her house. Harper must have been upstairs for a couple of hours and the world didn't end. They occupied themselves with torturing my father and me, but I don't want to talk about that. I blocked that trauma so effectively from my mind that I didn't believe Harper's stories for years. Whatever, I sighed. Let's just save your Earth's final hours before hell opens up. Listen, I've been reading my father's texts, Amy sniffed. The ones left in this ransacked house anyway. If we hurry, we could maybe. Oh, I think it's over, I coldly stated. Amy's eyes sharpened and her brow furrowed as she locked her gaze onto mine. But it wasn't evil that I saw under her eyes. Not the exactor. No, it was resolve. The dying dregs of a desperate human's resolve. That's it? What about Kara? She asked. Are you just going to let everything end? Well, what can we do? As we speak, the horrors are crawling out of their paintings. It won't be long before they wreak havoc upon mankind. And we're not exactly artists, so I doubt that we could whip up. I trailed off, possessed by an inspired idea. The covered paintings on the gallery's top floor. Exact copies of the ones downstairs, I whispered. Amy slowly nodded at gathering my drift. Right. Harper's backups. Backups, as she used to say. The name etching ritual. It must be performed by the original artist, I asked. Amy shrugged. Well, the texts only dictate that the one who uses a sacrificial etching tool, their tooth will bind the apocalyptic abhorrences to drawn likenesses. So if I were to etch my name into each of Harper's backup paintings, I thoughtfully whispered, delicately tapping one of my teeth, but then I sighed. We're miles from England. Thousands will have died in the time that we reach the gallery. Amy's eyes widened. You know, there are other ancient rituals that our father detailed in his translated texts. Mayans, Incas, and other ancient cultures learned things that modern people have forgotten. When their cities fell to ruins, these survivors utilized centuries of spiritual teachings to encage the exactor and its legions in prisons. But they used the power of art for other things too. What ritual could save us? I asked. A painting of the gallery, she answered. A doorway to the real gallery. My blood froze. I immediately recalled my terrifying experience in prison, being trapped in a painting that I truly believed to be reality. Harper had freed me from that hellish place with an exit doorway. I swore to myself that I would stay firmly grounded in the real world for the rest of my life, but Amy was suggesting that I willingly step back into that existential hellishness. And how would I ever know that I've returned to the real world? I asked. Now this wouldn't be like any of the other paintings. It would be a portal, not a prison. You can feel the differences between painted color and real color. Trust me, she said. Even when you were in prison, 
Part of you always knew that something was wrong. Can you deny that? Amy was right. A painted lie can never convince a person forever. But how could I be sure? And then I considered the alternative option. The total extinction of humanity. But we're back at square one, I pointed out. We need a painting of the art gallery to service the portal. Do you know how to paint? Can you create a believable likeness of the art gallery on a canvas? I certainly can't. I think you underestimate just how many paintings my sister created in her youth, Amy said smiling. She guided me out of the basement on shaky legs continuing to explain things. We had moved to England because Harper couldn't bear this place anymore. But we also moved because I had business contacts in your country. Anyway, I found the perfect little spot for my teenage sister's art gallery. Amy continued her story as we clambered up the creaky stairs. So, what was the first thing my sister did when I showed her the property? She painted the new prison for her macabre paintings. She said that it gives a place power to be included in the ritual. Of course, I didn't believe in her deluded ramblings back then. I had convinced myself that none of these supernatural horrors really happened on the night of our father's breakdown. Anyway, Harper left the painting at this house, along with many others. She said she would do a better one at some point. Do you think it's a good enough likeness of the art gallery to work as a teleporter? I asked. Amy gulped. I really hope so. I don't want you to become trapped in some non-existent painted realm. A half-human, half-paint splintered thing. No thanks. Great pep talk, I said. It really makes me want to do this. Amy opened the door to Harper's bedroom and matter-of-factly replied, It's not like you have a choice, is it? Unless you want me to do it. I shook my head. Inside Harper's old bedroom, a stack of half-finished paintings lay on her dusty, neglected duvet. Amy and I sifted through the pile, eventually finding Harper's early attempt at creating prison. Obviously, before moving to England and turning the property into an art gallery, Harper's visions of grandeur were a teenage fantasy. Fortunately, her painted vision was not too far removed from what the art gallery became. I wanted to do something for her, Amy somberly explained, tearily cradling the painting. After mom and dad died, Harper wasn't the same. I thought a place for her art would help her heal as much as the paintings horrified me. I didn't want to talk about Harper. The horror was too fresh, too raw. How do we turn prison into a portal? I asked. Sacrifice, Amy quietly replied. It's always about sacrifice. So another tooth, I asked. To bend the construct of space, Mayans bent the mind. That's what my dad wrote, Amy said, handing me a bottle of Jack Daniels. I laughed. You're kidding with me. I need to drink to save the world. To travel elsewhere, you have to loosen the connection to your present position in space and time. Amy replied with a deadpan expression. I guess harder drugs might work, but this is all I've got. A bottle of Jack. I planned on drinking myself to death after all. I slugged most of the liquid down my throat, ignoring the burning sensation and the desire to vomit. Touch the canvas, Amy instructed, and repeat the following words after me. Try to pronounce each syllable clearly. I placed my hands on the painting. 
Miss Andrews began to speak in an ancient language and I followed suit. After several minutes, the alcohol had started to hit my system and I had to concentrate incredibly hard. I didn't want to slur a single letter. The colors of the painting started to swirl and then something horrifying happened. My flesh began to melt. I shrieked, truly believing that Amy Andrews had deceived me. I watched my skin liquefy, meshing with the canvas, and my jaw dropped in terror. It's working, Amy cried. Good luck, Frank. What about you? I murmured, slipping into the canvas. Amy smiled tearily. Every ritual demands a sacrifice, Frank. The line between fiction and reality disintegrated. What remained of Harper's bedroom had transformed into a swirling whirl of painted colors, but I saw Amy Andrews clearly. I saw that blue, painted terror trickle down her peachy cheek. I saw the blade that she produced from her pocket. The colors had started to mix, but I knew what she did. I tried to scream at the horrifying sight, but my face was composed of a melting and painted liquid. My limbs slowly warped out of shape and I felt nothing. That absence of sensation was the true terror. My eyesight blurred as the vibrant kaleidoscope of colors seemed to bulge and spiral. The painted art gallery grew to fill the room, and my body became sloshy paint on its canvas. And then I fell onto the darkened floor of the real art gallery. Nobody had been watching the paintings for hours, and not that it mattered. After the destruction of Harper's Tooth, eyes were powerless against the Exactor and its legions. The ritual had been broken. Resolving to fix that, I pulled myself to my feet. The world hadn't ended. There was time, but the gallery's eerie silence horrified me. Not as much as the first thing that I noticed, of course. Empty paintings. Every painting but Harper's youth dies had been abandoned by the monstrosities that I was supposed to guard. The girl sat in her painting with her faceless head in her hands. She was sobbing and I felt like doing the same. Her painted form seemed even more terrifying in the wake of the real Harper's diabolical demise. She mumbled, slipping her head out of her hands and motioning for me to come closer. As I did, as she leaned out of her canvas, I placed my ear against her face, shuddering as it slipped beneath her flesh. They're destroying the upstairs paintings, but they won't find the apocalypse. Before I could ask what she meant, her canvas flopped out of its frame and softly floated to the tiled floor. My jaw hung agape as I saw the hidden painting on the back of Harper's youth dies. It depicted everything, every terrible entity, every apocalyptic situation necessary to keep the demons lost in their false paradise. Clearly, that hidden painting had always been Harper's real plan B. A more efficient way of trapping the creatures. Only one painting to watch. And only one name to edge. Heart throbbing against my chest, I plunged my hand into my mouth. Pinching a canine with my thumb and index finger, I took a deep breath. Closing my eyes, I tugged with all of my might. The pain was excruciating, but what made it worse was that... I couldn't seem to free the slippery canine. I needed a tool to loosen the ritualistic tool. I ran over to the reception desk and rummaged around in the drawer for a pair of scissors. Another deep inhale. 
and then I slammed the blades into... Sorry, I can't. It's just, it's too horrible. I eventually dislodged the tooth. The blood gushed in a free-flowing waterfall. Hand trembling, I victoriously held the canine up to my eye and began to laugh deliriously. I was inebriated and I'm sure that eased the pain, but it still hurt like crazy. The drunkenly stumbling towards the apocalypse, which lay on the ground, I finally saw the light at the end of the tunnel. And then the front door opened. Frank? Kara cried. Where did you go? I spun around, shakily outstretching an arm. Kara, go home. My wife's eyes grew and she screamed at me. Look out. A heavy hand constricted my throat. Not a human hand. I already knew what had seized me. The weighty wave of hopelessness and existential dread was unmistakable. As the hand hoisted me off the ground, the thing started to twist me around to face it. There inches from my choking face was the ghastly face of the exactor. Its wicked white eyes pierced mine, but that wasn't what filled me with horror. Its flash wasn't sizzling under the weight of my gaze. No tooth, no imprisoning ritual, no power. And that ever-gaping, ever-slack mouth suddenly closed, as if the creature were no longer furious. In its place, the creature offered a smile. The most dreadful smile conceivable. The one I'm sure Amy and Harper saw on their father's face. The grin of a thing that had finally found a way to end mankind. I wheezed, gasping for air as the shirtless creature twice as tall as any human choked me. I had never felt so utterly petrified. I eyeballed the face of a boundless power, a thing older than time itself perhaps. The edges of my vision started to blacken, but I had no tricks up my sleeve. My eyes could no longer imprison it. And then I heard screaming. The exactor dropped me, more concerned with the spectacle in the main reception area. I turned to face my wife and I screeched. Harper's ghoul had seemingly fled its painting, the canvas which still lay on the floor displaying the apocalypse on the reverse side and I could only watch in helpless horror as the faceless girl merged with Kara's body. The exactor unleashed its boathorn cry and its minions inexplicably seeped through the cracks in the tiles, slinking their slender bodies into the room, morphing their flat forms into full-bodied limbs. I wondered where the cavalry had been hiding, and I suddenly saw why they were so animated. Kara's eyes rolled into the back of her head and her body began to levitate. I screamed in horror, wondering why Harper had turned on me in my darkest hour. But then something incredible happened. Oh, Kara said, eyes still rolling into the back of her head. Now I see. The exactors began to lurch towards my hovering wife and I watched in bewilderment as she flicked them aside. The exactor crept across the floor towards her, crunching the meager bodies of its henchmen beneath its feet. Kara and Harper couldn't kill the things, but they weren't trying to kill them. They were trying to buy time for me. I crawled across the floor, breathlessly spluttering from the swollen neck that the exactor had given me. And when I reached the apocalypse, I opened the palm of my clenched hand to reveal my bloody canine. Writing tool in hand, I finally started to etch two crucial words. Frank Hall, 
Those choral screams sounded again. The symphony of dying people, but it wasn't real. It wasn't real and that was a good thing. It meant the exactor was trying to get in my head and it meant the ritual had worked. I looked up to see a gaping mouth of fury on the ten-foot-tall ghoul's face. Its minions began to decompose, turning into blackened masses of paint, much as Harper had described. The creatures slipped into the apocalypse, imprisoned in a painting once more. The exactor held onto our world for dear life, screeching under the weight of my eyes upon it. His flash was a blazing inferno and he released one final cry of agony before slipping into the painting of the apocalypse. I ran over to my wife who was lying on the floor in a dazed state. I just wanted to see her place of work again, she croaked. I cried with laughter, relieved that my wife was okay. What the heck happened back there? Kara coughed. I came to save you. No, I mean... Oh, right, the demonic possession. It was still me in there. Harper just showed me the way. Honestly, I thought you learned your lesson the last time that you strolled in here, I said. Kara smiled weakly. I had to save you. But the evening's shocks didn't end with the re-imprisonment of the exactor and the other demons. In the early morning hours of my shift, Amy Andrews walked through the door. I gasped. I in the bandaged stump that used to be her right arm. I had misinterpreted the severity of the sacrifice she had made, and I think that news saved my fractured mind. I couldn't handle any more death. Amy's family had suffered enough. Amy suffered enough, locked out of her own mind for 20 years. I intend to keep her far away from the exactor so that he never gets his claws into her again. We've talked about the future of the art gallery, but there's only one painting that really matters anymore. There's only one that's still fully intact. The Apocalypse. And well, Harper's youth dies on the reverse side, but that's our little secret. Miss Andrews said that I can keep the job and she's hired somebody else to watch the place during the day. Somebody that we can trust. Somebody who understands the importance of the art gallery. Kara. I wasn't too happy about my wife being involved, but nobody can be shielded from the apocalypse. No risks can be taken. Too much is at stake. I'm a security guard who works the night shift at an art gallery, and I think I need a raise. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always... Stay creepy. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.